Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You, who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants to. For he said, I am God's son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, indeed. Thank you, Rachel, for reading our scripture lesson for us this morning. It's good to see you on screen. We miss you and your family. We're grateful to you for sharing our lesson today. Jim, thank you for your prayer this morning that meant so much to all of us and to Mason for the music, uh, to all of you. To those of you who are in person, it is a special thing and a holy thing uh, to be in this place with you all today. And especially to those of you who are streaming, it is a great joy to spend Palm Passion Sunday with you at the beginning of this high and holy week. We come almost to the final message in our series called Passion. As you know, we've been exclusively focusing on two chapters of Scripture from the first gospel, Matthew chapters 26 and 27, which narrate the final days of the earthly, earthly life and ministry of our Lord. We call it Holy Week or Passion Week, and this morning we move quickly now from the processional, what seemed to be a coronation, which by the end of the week became a funeral procession as we celebrate, commemorate, and remember this Palm Passion Sunday. I want us to turn this morning to the cross. 
Dorothy Sayers, 20th century poet, essayist, and disciple of Jesus said, and I quote, it is curious to me that people who are filled with horrified indignation whenever a cat kills a sparrow can hear the story of the killing of God told Sunday after Sunday and never experience any shock at all. I've noticed that sometimes even in the pulpit, we tend to sweeten the coffee to soften the bitter taste. And in the same way, on this Passion Sunday, we can so romanticize, we can so domesticate and sentimentalize the passion of Jesus that it kind of loses its shock and awe. For me, the most appalling thing about Matthew 27 is not just the fact of his death, it's the manner of his death. Indeed, the way that Jesus died dissuaded many people in the first century from accepting him as Christ, as Lord, as Messiah, because after all, if you know the Torah, the Mosaic law clearly states in Deuteronomy chapter 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. And so the question of the early church in many who were a part of the community in which the church began was this, how on earth could Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah when he proved to be so utterly helpless against the Romans? I've noticed historically that every regime has its terror apparatus. For Rome, it was crucifixion a form of capital punishment devised, originated probably by the Persians, later adopted by the Romans. It was reserved for the dregs of society, for slaves, for serial criminals, thugs, rebels, and it was practiced in Rome for centuries until finally in the fourth century in the common era, Constantine made it illegal. When I think of crucifixion in that time, I think of Spartacus, don't you? Spartacus, who I can imagine resembles a, a a little bit like Kirk Douglas, perhaps. The revolutionary gladiator who you remember led a slave rebellion against Rome. When his revolt was finally crushed by Crassus in 71 BCE, the Roman general ordered the crucifixion of 6,000 slaves along what's called the Appian Way. It was a major trade route that stretched 130 miles between Capua and Rome. 6,000 crucified, their bodies left hanging to decompose as a message, a signal to anyone in that day considering rebellion against Rome in the future. Executions, of course, were carried out in public places, thought to be a deterrent to civil disobedience, and quite often to increase the shame, victims were often crucified naked, which was terribly offensive to the Jewish people. And so it may have been for Jesus. The record states that the soldiers on detail at Golgotha cast lots, they they rolled dice, they drew straws, in order to see who would gain his personal effects. And the whole affair is is horrendous. The storyline on Jesus 
unlike Spartacus, is not the tale of a rebel who went down swinging. It's the tale of a servant who went down lamenting. And I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, but I think it's pretty important that whenever you see a cross, whether it's on an altar or a steeple or a necklace or a tattooed arm, I think it's important that we really know what it means. It's a badge of suffering and shame. It's a tool of terror and fear, and it takes some nerve to wear one and more to bear one. According to Matthew 27, in what we have read this morning, the cross was also a symbol of abandonment. Now, the text highlights the fact that Jesus pretty much died by his lonesome. In fact, everybody on the scene, everybody pretty much snubbed Jesus. I remember John R. Stott, the great British Anglican theologian who died a decade ago, once saying, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Everybody shunned Jesus. I think Jim was right on target. The Romans and the Sanhedrin are not the only rebellious ones against Jesus. It says something about us. The cross is not something simply done for us, but by us. Everybody shunned Jesus. Now, I suppose you could say, well, there's one exception, at least in the scripture we've read. Simon of Cyrene is an exception. An outsider, a foreigner from northern Africa, from Libya specifically, who happened to be in the wrong place, right, at the, at the wrong time. He actually carried the crossbar, or what we call the patibulum, because of the flogging of Jesus. Jesus is no longer strong enough to carry his own crossbar. But Simon Cyrene's support was coerced, you remember. He didn't willingly do it. He was compelled to do it. He didn't have a choice. The man was requisitioned. He felt the tap of the Roman soldier on his shoulder. He had no choice. He was forced to bear the cross. They all rejected him. The religious institution, the Sanhedrin, the temple, the synagogue, the government, the disciples, the followers, the soldiers, the crowd, the bystanders. And what gets me is even the two thieves who were crucified on either side. You would think at least those two guys who suffered a similar fate might have come to his defense. In fact, Luke says that one of them was converted, but not Matthew. They all shirked Jesus. In fact, it's interesting to note that the bystanders, thieves, and religious professionals all alike issued the same challenge to the man on the center cross. You remember what they said? If you are who you say you are, if you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross and we'll believe. Does that sound familiar? It should. Jesus had heard that voice before. You remember when? It was right after baptism. Forty days in the wilderness, he heard a voice. If you are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. 
Look after number one. Feed yourself. Break your fast. Forget about the spiritual concentration. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, for the Bible says that the angels will uphold you. Satan went to Bible school. He knows the Scripture. Show them your muscle. That's what the voice was saying. Show them who's boss, if that's who you really are. And the same voice that he heard in the beginning, he hears at the end. And now what's really strange is he's hearing that same voice in the crowd. Thomas Carlyle, Scottish historian, once said, a crowd has the collective wisdom of individual ignorance. And so it is. Those who follow the crowd usually get lost in the crowd. Jesus heard the same line at the beginning and at the end, but also at the midpoint of his ministry. That same voice. You remember after Peter at Caesarea Philippi made the first profession of faith, you are the Christ, that Jesus then began to define the nature of his Messiahship and what it means to follow him. He said, I must go to Jerusalem and endure suffering at the hands of the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And you remember Peter's response? No way, he said. The Scripture says that, that Peter rebuked Jesus. In other words, he, he spoke to Jesus like a principal speaks to a student. There's no need for that. There's no need for sacrifice, for suffering, for self-denial. And Jesus responds to that voice, get behind me, Satan. Same line, same voice, beginning, middle, end. Same old, same old. I mean, let's be honest. We all want Jesus as Lord, provided that I get to choose the platform. I confess Jesus as Messiah as long as I can set the policy, as long as I can set the terms. But when he starts talking about a cross, we sometimes look for another rabbi. When I went to Emory University, to Candler School of Theology, I had, a, I had an Italian professor fresh out of Harvard named Dr. David Pacini, who said one day, and this has been many years ago, that his father, who had been on staff at Union Seminary in New York, remembered the night that Dietrich Bonhoeffer shared with him, with Dr. Niebuhr and Dr. Tillich, that he had decided to leave the city leave the States in New York and go back to Germany where he would be martyred at the age of 39 because of his stance against the Third Reich. And Dr. Pacini said, he said to his friends these words, there is no point in being a Christian if you walk away from every opportunity to be one. There is no point in being a Christ follower if we walk away from every opportunity to be one. Well, to me, the most painful part of this story is not the abandonment of the crowd. That's to be expected. But to me, the most painful part is the sense of divine neglect that Jesus felt. 
Of the seven last words, and by the way, this Friday, we're going to present all seven words in the combined four Gospels. Of the seven last words that Jesus spoke from the cross, Matthew records only one. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's hard to hear. Jesus knew at that moment what we know about being fully human, that it includes the mountaintop, it includes the valley, it includes transfiguration, it includes Golgotha. And Jesus knew what it meant to be fully human. By the way, I think at this point he's not only airing his anguish, I think he's also reciting Scripture This is Scripture. He's quoting a lament, a lamentation from Psalm 22 that you know he must have learned as a boy. It goes like this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from my words of groaning? I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. I'm a worm, not human, scorned by others, despised by the crowd. All who see me mock at me, they make faces at me, they wag their heads. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves. And for my raiment, they cast lots. It's hard to hear. Now, you need to know that in ancient days, people of faith did not consider it inappropriate to argue with God. In fact, for Job, it was not unfaith, but faith that permitted Job to call God's justice into question. I I think of something Walter Wink once said. I love this. He said, Biblical prayer is impertinent, persistent, shameless, and unseemly. In fact, he said it's more like haggling in an outdoor bazaar than the polite monologues of the church. But notice that Jesus' cry of anguish is not a cry of despair. And that's key. He's still trusting. He's still loving. He's still believing. He's still hoping. He's still holding on to his faith. You say, how do you know? Look at the personal possessive pronoun. My God. Still, my God. Even in his torment, he's still claiming the Father. And so do we. There's a reason in these 40 days of Lent of repentance and fasting that we don't count the Sundays. Have you noticed this? If you ever do the math on the 40 days of Lent, there are actually 46 days. Why is that? Because we don't count the Sundays. Because in the mentality of the early church, it was believed that every Sunday is a little Easter. This is the reason that the early church changed Sabbath worship from Saturday to Sunday because of what happened on the third day. The one forsaken on the tree on Friday was actually raised up on Sunday. 
And because of what happened on Sunday, we actually refer to Friday as good. Good Friday. Because God is still at work. God is still on the throne. God is still moving even in our abandonment and rejection. He is redeeming us. He is raising us up. Now, I'm thinking this morning of the family of Eric Talley. You know that name, Eric Talley? Eric was an IT guy in Boulder, Colorado, making a good living, married with seven children ranging from age 5 to 20. And 11 years ago, at age 40, Eric had a friend who was killed in a DUI accident. And he was so heartbroken about what happened to his friend that he quit his job. He enrolled in the police academy because he said, I want to serve. Eric Talley was the first to respond last week when the call came of an active shooter at a grocery store outside of Denver. His daddy said of him, the first thing that Eric would have thought about when he got that call was, there are kids in that store. Somebody's got to do something. And he did. He was the first one in that store, and he took a bullet for it. He died last Monday. His funeral will be in two days. But I think you could make a case that Eric Talley didn't actually die last Monday. He died when he quit his desk job. He died 11 years ago to himself. He hated violence and wanted to serve, and so he just walked right into the line of fire. He was a believer. His daddy said of him, my son knew Jesus, and he modeled his life after the example of Christ. What a story. And when I read his story, I thought we too are called to serve in ways that risk ourselves for the good of others. And that requires a death to self. Paul said, I die every day to myself that Christ may live in me. Because when we deny ourselves and pick up a cross, you can bet it's going to cost you something. But even the losses can become victorious. And that's what the cross is all about. Dr. King was right when he said the cross is the eternal expression of the length to which God will go in order to restore broken community. That's why there's a cross. That's why there's a cross, center stage. That's why we lift high the cross. That, that's why we glory in the cross. That's, that's why we cherish the cross. And that's why we sing with Isaac Watts those profound lyrics when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. 
See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what the cross means. And it's a, it's a good thing to wear it, but it's a beautiful thing to bear it. Thomas Akempis said, bear the cross joyfully, and it will bear you. God, help us on this day, in this holy week, to bear it well, with Jesus, for Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen.